Marginalized groups exist in every community. Their stories often get swept under the rug, forgotten, or minimalized. By sharing these stories, we hope to cultivate compassion and equip the local church to better care for all people. This is Life Stories. I actually had a dream once that I was in heaven and a little dark-headed boy came running up to me. And I believed in my dream, or afterwards, you know, interpreting my dream that, you know, that was one of those children. Yeah. And so I think, I, I believe that I will see those children again. This season on Life Stories, we are focusing in on one specific area of Life Task Force ministry. Members of the Life Task Force support a local women's clinic who help moms in crisis. With the overturning of Roe v. Wade, this year has once again brought the problem of abortion to the forefront of the American psyche. It raises many questions in hard conversations, often pitting people against each other. One social media movement encourages women to shout their abortion, desiring to normalize women's experiences. There are few people who have not been affected by abortion in some way. Life stories exist to tell stories about marginalized people groups in hopes that it will stir up compassion and help equip the local church to better love those around them. This season, we will share stories of abortions, not those shouted, but those whispered in prayer, in tears, or never spoken at all. The men and women in these stories have been deeply affected by abortion, whether by personal experience or through someone they love. What we've learned is that abortion is not an individual choice that leaves no ripple effects, but leaves a wide wake behind it. It stirs up pain in everyone and everything that it touches. We're not offering answers to the problem, only true stories shared in faith, in tears, in the hope that someone who is listening, who has suffered silently, will hear that they are not alone. My name is Debbie Fogel, and I am uh, a wife, a mom, a grandmother. I'm retired. I've got a, a lot of volunteer things that I'm involved in. My husband and I lead a life group, and I teach English as a second language at First Baptist Grapevine, and I, this is my, I believe, eighth year to do that, and that's like probably my key ministry right now is reaching out to these adults in our community who need to learn English, and I just I love that. What do you feel like your greatest joy is right now in your life? I would say probably those relationships that I have the privilege of developing with people from other nations who've come here. I, I've prayed that God would open up doors of opportunity, and it's just a, it's a joy to me. Growing up, Debbie was raised in church, and as many young people do, she understood only parts of what it meant to be saved. I was an only child. My parents were both Christians. I think my mother was more of the motivating person in the family as far as spiritual things, but always saw that we were in church. 
It actually wasn't until I was 15 and we were living in Anchorage, Alaska. I had a, a foundation of knowing, you know, who God was, who Jesus was, but I didn't really understand what it meant to make a commitment to Christ. And I actually was baptized when I was in seventh grade, but had no clue really what that meant or why I was doing it. Um, Then we moved away from there, lived in um, Utah for two years, went to a small Baptist church in Utah, and I knew something was missing. I did not have an assurance of salvation. I didn't think that being baptized had saved me. And I went forward again in a church to—I wasn't really— well counseled, I guess. And I was baptized again mm-hmm. when I was in eighth grade. <laughs> okay, so mm-hmm. time moves on. We moved to Anchorage, Alaska, and we were in a, a larger church that had a strong youth program, mm-hmm. very strong biblical preaching there. And I began to just hunger for God's word, to absorb it. I went to everything. Every time the doors were open, I was there. I took notes on sermons. I read the Bible on my own. I read Christian books, but I was still trying to figure it all out. Mm -hmm. What makes you a Christian? How do I know that I have eternal life? And I was extremely introverted. I was not the kind of kid who would go and ask the youth pastor questions. No. (laughs) Um, And so I was just doing this search on my own, internally, trying to figure it out. And I was reading the Bible and reading the book of Romans and just consciously or unconsciously trying to find the answer. And I came to Romans 10.31, whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And I went, oh, is that it? Is that all there is to it? I just have to ask? That's, That's how you become a Christian? I ask? And it was like something clicked. And we were having revival at our church, and um, I went forward again. This time, I knelt at the altar. I still, I guess in my mind, thought you had to go forward. Mm-hmm. But, but I, I knew what I was doing, and I prayed, you know, Lord, I'm asking you, please, you know, make me your child. Give me eternal life. And then I knew. Mm-hmm. that I was. I was mm-hmm. baptized a third time <laughs> when I was 15, almost 16 years old. Yeah. Yeah. Debbie attended a Southern Baptist University, my alma mater, actually. She was heavily involved and received a degree in religious studies. At this time, Roe v. Wade had not been in effect for very long, and her understanding of abortion was very limited. I'm not sure even where I knew about abortion, probably just from TV or something. Never heard any theological discussion of it in any Bible class or anything like that. It was just something kind of on the periphery of Mm -hmm. society that you hadn't really had to engage with or understand at all. And I was thinking about that even today um, because... During that time was probably one of my first exposures to abortion. I heard 
a conversation between a couple of other dorm directors about a student who'd been raped. And the dorm director had taken her to Oklahoma City to have an abortion. So that little tidbit of information was tucked into my mind. Then I went on to Southwestern Seminary and um, met my husband probably after I'd been there a little over a year. Mm-hmm. He was a student as well. And um, again, I don't think I ever heard any discussion in seminary at all about sanctity of human life, the issue of abortion. Um, I know it's still a fairly new issue. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that most Christians had really wrestled with it and said to themselves, well, what does the Bible say about this? I don't think they had. Debbie had grown up in Southern Baptist churches. She went to a Southern Baptist university. And at this time, there really wasn't a lot of clarity as to what this denomination believed about abortion. In fact, two years prior to Roe v. Wade being established, the Southern Baptist Convention put out its first resolution on abortion, in which it resolved that, and I quote, this convention expressed the belief that society has a responsibility to affirm through the laws of the state, a high view of the sanctity of life, including fetal life, in order to protect those who cannot protect themselves. And they also resolved to call upon Southern Baptist, and I quote again, to work for legislation that will allow the possibility of abortion under such conditions as rape, incest, clear evidence of severe fetal deformity, and carefully ascertained evidence of the likelihood of damage to the emotional, mental, and physical health of the mother. Debbie, like many others, didn't really have an understanding of abortion past the pamphlet that she had received from her gynecologist. She went on to attend seminary, where she met her first husband, Dan. They started dating and eventually got engaged. Her husband was working as a youth minister, and they felt deep shame at their sexual activity prior to marriage. The few weeks leading up to our wedding, I was really tired, not feeling great, but just really tired. And then on our honeymoon, I started to have morning sickness. And I thought I had a bug. Um... But then I remember we were driving home from our honeymoon, which was in Galveston, Texas, back to Fort Worth, where our home was. And it's suddenly hitting me. Hmm. You're tired. You're feeling nauseous. You haven't had a period in a while. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, my, could I be pregnant? Hadn't occurred to me before then. And went home to our little house in Fort Worth and bought a pregnancy test at a drugstore. It was positive. And um, the thoughts that went through my head, like, you know, my parents can never know this. The next 
thing I thought about was, okay, Dan's looking for a full-time church position. And if we go into a church position and anybody's aware that we just got married in December, but this baby is going to be born in July or whatever, you know, it'll become obvious. And the immediate thought that I had immediately was, I've got to have an abortion. Before we, I had gotten married, I had gone, my mother had taken me to her, our family OBGYN mm -hmm. to get on birth control. And he gave me a booklet that I presume he gave to all of his patients that was on women's health. And it talked about different kinds of birth control. It talked about pregnancy, delivery, all these topics. It also included abortion in that book. I don't know how much detail it went into in explaining abortion procedures, but it gave a pretty, um, I would say, kind of glossed over explanation of what an abortion is. And I think in my mind, I thought, this is our family doctor. My mother went to him. My grandmother went to him. If he's giving this booklet out and it includes abortion, then that must be an okay, legitimate choice to make. What I did was I went and got the yellow pages out, looked up abortion providers in the yellow pages, looked to see, is there one nearby? And then I went to Dan and I said, this is what we need to do. No discussion. He said, okay. I mean, it was just like, we didn't even have to speak the words. We both knew this was a bad thing. And it was like, we could look at each other and go, mm, no, this, this can't be. Yeah, without even having to say it. They had me come in and do a pregnancy test and kind of, I guess, at that point, determined how far along they thought I was, and then scheduled the procedure, which was on a Saturday morning. And um, so it wasn't immediate. I think I was so early in the pregnancy that they wanted me to wait. So they, at that time, anyway, I think they liked for you to be eight to 10 weeks along, somewhere in there. We had to be there very early, I remember that. We went to the clinic in Fort Worth, and there was a lot of other women there. I blocked out a lot of the details of it, I think. Mm -hmm. I don't remember it being uh, terribly traumatic mm -hmm. at the time. I don't remember it being like extremely painful. It was over and done fairly quickly. And I do remember, okay, I wasn't kind of like having a surgery you're not supposed to eat anything a certain amount of time beforehand. So by the time the procedure was over, I hadn't had anything to eat. I was starved. And we stopped and got a burger at some fast food place. And I ate it and then promptly threw it up. I remember that. Dan had to pull off on the side of the road, and I threw up the lunch I'd just eaten. And crazy us... We had plans to go see his sister and her family in Dallas that afternoon. Did so, you go? Yeah, we went. I had an abortion. I was sick to my stomach, and then we headed on over to his sister's house and spent the afternoon. It was like <laughs> kind of 
surreal in a way, you know, but that's how much in denial we were that it was anything. Uh, I think that, you know, it, we're just taking care of a problem and life goes on. Um, I don't remember at that point feeling like any kind of regret or guilt or, which is interesting though, because there obviously was guilt there because it was not something we would ever tell anybody that we had done. So just the, the fact that this is secret shows that you have guilt and shame, okay? <laughs> but we went on, normal life. Um, Dan was uh, still searching for a full-time church staff position. I was actually working as a church secretary. Then in probably two months or less, I was pregnant again. And I was on birth control. <clears throat> the abortion clinic prescribes you birth control pills after the procedure. This time, our thoughts were a little different. Um, we were married, obviously. It wouldn't have been uh, like an embarrassment or a moral issue. But our thoughts then were, okay, he doesn't have a full-time job yet. We're barely getting by. We are, you know, we're paying our bills, but just barely, no, no extra money there. We didn't have health insurance. Um, all those thoughts, we are not ready to have a baby. And it, having had an abortion once, and it didn't seem like such a big deal at the time, it was very easy to do it again. So you just, did you go to the same place? Went to the same place, and that became a more um, emotionally traumatic experience because the doctor looked at my records and saw that I'd had another abortion not that long ago and chastised me for it. And he said, you need a better form of birth control. And I was very upset by his comment. Uh, I, I don't know if I cried or if I held back tears. Um, but I remember being very upset at him judging me. <laughs> and the thoughts that went through my mind then and later were, how dare you? the person who's performing abortions and making money off of doing it, judging me for having a second abortion. So it's interesting that he had some scruples, I guess, thinking that, well, abortion's okay, but not if you're using it as birth control, then it's not okay. After her abortions, Debbie and her husband moved for him to be able to be in full-time ministry. They were in a new place, away from all she knew, and she began experiencing depression. She and her husband never spoke of the abortions or their decision. I think as far as my normal mental health was probably about the same. Mm -hmm. But then after, some months after, when Dan got his first full-time church position uh, and we moved to Corpus Christi, Texas, 
I became depressed at that point, I am certain. And at the time, I would have chalked it up to relocation, new church, having to make friends, new friends, all of that, just the change. But I really believe looking back that uh, a lot of it was those abortions I'd had. And maybe the, the changes in my life kind of just added to that. Well, and your hormonal changes. Sure. I mean, you're still, it's still post-pregnancy. Mm, that's true. I yeah. thought about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I had to, you know, adjust to a new church, new friends. Everything's new. Um, his parents lived very close. They lived in a small town outside of Corpus Christi. So we were seeing a lot of his family. I was almost paralyzed really by depression at that point because Dan would go to work and at this new job. And my job, I wasn't working yet, was to unpack and get the house organized, right? And he'd come home after work and say, well, what did you do today? And I'd be like, well, hmm, I unpacked that one box there. And he was frustrated because I didn't appear to be doing much of anything. Maybe I cleaned the bathtub. I don't know how I came out of that depression. You know, I didn't get any counseling or anything. But like you say, maybe part of it was hormonal. But over time, I just kind of emerged from it. And I got a job as a church secretary again. And... You know, life started to fall into a routine, church and work and mm-hmm. family, and, and I think I just kind of came out of it. Yeah. Did you think about the abortions during that time? Not really. Didn't no. really come uh-uh. up? Yeah. No. I tr- it was, I tried not to, really. Mm-hmm. And I think Dan and I had very few actual discussions mm-hmm. about the abortion. And we never said to each other, We won't talk about this, but that was like the unspoken agreement is if we don't ever discuss it, then we can pretend that it never happened. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we did. We never spoke of it. She got pregnant with her third child, and this time it felt like the right season. I became pregnant with my oldest daughter when I was 27. So just a couple of years later, that time abortion never crossed my mind. It was like uh, all the excuses, reasons that we had for having an abortion before no longer applied. And I think by then, I probably started to come to terms a little bit with that was the wrong choice. And just as the resolutions passed by the Southern Baptist Convention have evolved over the decades, Debbie's understanding also began to evolve. But it wasn't until many years later that she began to understand what her abortions actually meant and how they were deeply affecting her and her husband. I mean, there were things through the years that I believe God used to kind of bring me out of my denial. I take that back. One of the incidences that really stands out in my mind, I'm not sure if it was before or after my daughter was born. Dan was no longer at that church where he had been working, and we were attending another church, um, First Baptist of Corpus Christi, actually, and they were doing like a Sunday night 
program called Whatever Happened to the Human Race? And it was narrated by Francis Schaeffer. And I think it's based on a book that he wrote. And it basically talked about life issues, abortion, euthanasia, children with disabilities, all those kind of topics. And there was an episode dealing specifically with abortion. And I am pretty sure that's the first time I'd ever seen any kind of a Christian presentation that dealt with the topic. And Francis Schaeffer was talking with C. Everett Koop, who was the Surgeon General at that time, who was very pro-life. And there was a scene that I will always remember. They were on a seashore, waves lapping in, and all across the beach were plastic baby dolls. And that was representing the human refuse of abortion, like the throwaway babies in our culture. And that was shocking to me. And I think it was the first time I ever thought of, I threw away two children. God would bring these things into my life to kind of get my attention, to make me face the decisions I'd made. And I would think about them, and I would have some emotional reaction to it, but then I'd kind of stuff it back down and go on. I know that giving birth to my two daughters did make me think about the pregnancies I had ended. There were, you know, other things that came into my world, like there was a series of pro-life commercials on TV. There was a series of like public service announcement type commercials called Life, What a Beautiful Choice. One in particular really stood out to me. And it was this young woman talking and she says, I live with the ghost of a child. I carry in my mind the picture of a child who was never born, a child I aborted, a picture that changes as the years go by. I imagine him growing tall with dark hair and eyes. Again and again, my mind returns to that ghost of a child who would have been 12 this spring. If you think abortion is an easy choice, that you can just forget about it, it's not true. You can't. Basically, she's saying that I think about all the time what my child would be today had I not ended its life. And that resonated with me. We moved when my girls were four and seven years old to Grapevine and joined what was then called Memorial Baptist Church. Anyway, we'd been here probably two or three years. And there was discussion about, hey, our church is going to get involved in helping to start this crisis pregnancy center. God just started prompting me, hey, you need to get involved in that. You need to volunteer. And I kept hearing about it in different places. And there was a lady in our Sunday school class who was already like on a committee or task force or something. 
and she was recruiting volunteers. Okay. <laughs> we need volunteers. And I think I must have told her that I'd be interested in volunteering. I remember very distinctly that um, some time had passed and my name had gotten on a list and I got a phone call on New Year's Day. I think it was 1995. And it was from the director of the Crisis Pregnancy Center. And she said, I understand you're interested in volunteering. And I was wondering if you could come over to my house this afternoon and bring me your volunteer application. I think I'd already been given a packet or something. And I said, okay. So I wouldn't do anything else. It was New Year's Day. And she didn't live very far from me. And so I drove over to her house, went upstairs to her little makeshift office, and gave her my volunteer application. And she looked at it, and she turned it over. And there was a backside to the page, which I had never seen. For some reason, I had never flipped the page over. And she says, oh, you forgot to fill out page two. Could you do that for me right now? And I said, sure. And I was sitting at a little card table, and she left the room to let me finished filling out the form. And I'm going down the page, about a third or so way down the page, it says, have you ever had an abortion? And when I saw that question, it just took my breath away. Mm -hmm. I wasn't expecting it. I, for a moment, toyed with lying. And then I thought, oh, this is a Christian ministry. I guess I should be honest. <laughs> <laughs> and with great fear and trepidation, trepidation I marked yes, mm. finished filling the form out. She came back in. Her name was Diane. She looked it, looked it over, and she says, oh, so I see you've had an abortion. Have you ever gotten any counseling or been in any kind of a support group or anything like that? And I was like, no, I didn't know there was such a thing. She was very kind. She did not react in any form of showing shock or disgust. And she just said, you know what? If you would like to volunteer at Real Choices, it would really be good for you to go through our post-abortion support program. Would you be willing to do that? And I said, I think so, but I need to talk to my husband about it. I drove home from her house to my house was probably five minutes or less. And I was amazed at the lightness that I felt on that drive because I told somebody it wasn't a secret anymore mm -hmm. and she was very loving and accepting I'm like wow got home sometime later told my husband about this and his reaction was you can't do that like why not he said well, if somebody knows there's a post-abortion support group taking place and they see you go in and out of that building, then they'll know. Mm -hmm. That was how deep his shame was. And he was very, very ashamed and did not want anyone to know. We started talking for the first time in however many years that had been. I think about, I want to say 13 years probably about our abortion decisions. First time we'd ever talked about it. And 
we were at that point doing evening walks and we would talk. And there was a lot of healing that started taking place just from us talking to each other about it. And after a few days or a week or so, he said, okay, I think it's all right. You can go. So that started my healing journey. Um, But I still had so much shame. Finally, healing began. And as God always does, he began to use the dark places of her heart to build a ministry. One of the ladies that was leading the post-abortion support group was also a member of this church. And the director had told me her name and who she was. And she said, I'm going to be giving your name and phone number to her for her to reach out to you. I came to church the next Sunday morning, and I saw that woman across the room. I was scared to see her because I thought she knows who I am. And it didn't occur to me, okay, she's post-abortive too. Mm -hmm. She's not going to judge you. But I, I was just so afraid for anyone to know the truth. You'd hidden it for so long. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 And really well. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, pretty well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Once I began to be exposed to a biblical view of the unborn, I had to come to grips with the fact that I had actually killed a human being. Because I think the way that I coped was by not thinking of that pregnancy as a child, but thinking of it as a potential human rather than an actual human. So my view of that began to change, of course. But even as I came to grips with that truth that I had actually taken two lives, at the same time, I was beginning to realize that I was not the unforgivable sin and that God forgave me just like he could forgive any other sin. And I think up until that point, I had felt like the woman with the scarlet letter. The A, instead of being for adultery, was for abortion. And I felt like I wore this brand on me. And that if anybody knew what I had done, I would be an outcast. People would be disgusted. They would not be able to believe that I had done such a thing. In the context of that small group, all the women in it were post-abortive, including the leaders. I felt their love and acceptance And consequently, I began to feel God's love and acceptance through them. If these people can love me and accept me, knowing the awful truth, then God can too. And maybe other people will. Did Dan ever go and get help? You know, there wasn't anything for men at that time. We talked a lot, and I shared a lot with him of what I was going through in our Bible study. I actually brought home a book <laughs> for him and that was aimed at men. And he, I think he went through most of it himself. But he never had the experience of being in a small group of, with other men. Did the abortions have anything to do with him leaving ministry, do you think? You know, that's an interesting thought. I don't think anybody ever knew. But I have 
thought at times that I wondered if God pulled him out of ministry. And I don't think that God was punishing him, but I wonder if in some way God was just trying to get our attention. After I kind of went through this healing process and he worked through some of his own stuff, mm -hmm. he shared his testimony several times in different ways. And so he and he told all of his immediate family about our abortions. I never told my parents, ever. And they were very kind and compassionate and yeah, supportive of me and my ministry with the pregnancy center. What do you feel like he did in you? He showed me his unconditional love that there wasn't anything that I could do that would cause him to not love me and that Jesus' death on the cross paid for those abortions just like it's paid for every other sin you've ever committed or ever will commit. He lifted my shame, I mean, almost completely. And he showed me that he can use my experience for good, that I can help other people who are struggling. He showed me that I'm not alone, that there's tons of people who have had similar experiences. He can work all things together for good, no matter what we do. Now, when you think back on your abortions, what kind of feelings or thoughts do you have when you think back now? I think about how insensitive I was to the Holy Spirit, that I wasn't listening. You know, uh, I truly believe I was a Christian, but I think I'd hardened my heart first by having sex outside of marriage, which I knew was wrong. Mm -hmm. And then when you can justify one sin, it's easier to fall in and justify the next sin. I think of it as probably the worst decision I ever made in my life, but God has still redeemed it. So there's no shame there? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Can I ask if you ever think about the babies? Yeah. Um, I When I went through the post-abortion support group, that was one of the things they had us do, mm -hmm. was pray about and think about and ask God to show us who was that child. Did we think it was a boy or a girl? And then to give a name. And we actually had a little kind of memorial service to honor those children. I talked with Dan about it, and that was really hard for him. He didn't want to do it at first. But together, we named them. If you were to go back mm -hmm. and talk to Debbie, mm -hmm. who had just watched that first documentary, mm -hmm. what would you say to her? Um, I think I would tell her that there is forgiveness, there is healing. You need to talk to somebody about this. Now, where I would have found that person to talk to then, I don't know. That's the thing. It wasn't just like readily available. Yeah. You know, I wasn't aware of any kind of post-abortion support. I wasn't even aware of 
a pregnancy center per se. There might have been one, but I didn't know anything about that. I think I would have told her, maybe talk to your husband about it. Let's talk about it. That it's not going to get better by just ignoring it. It's something that you're going to have to deal with in your life, and the sooner the better. Dan passed away in 2009. Today, Debbie is remarried with grown children and spends her time ministering by teaching ESL classes. Many women have carried the secret shame and grief of their abortions as young women for decades. If this is you, it's never too late to talk to someone. If you or someone you know needs help, you can go to churchatthecross.com slash women's dash care to get connected with people who care. Life Stories is a production of the Life Task Force at Church at the Cross. For more information, go to churchatthecross.com.